John Yates is Executive Director of the Youth Endowment Fund, a £200 million charitable fund focused on integrating young people into society. After graduating from the University of Oxford, he started his career as a community worker in the London borough of Newham before joining McKinsey & Company, where he advised charities, companies and government on strategy and organisational development. He has co-founded a series of charities and initiatives including The Challenge and More in Common, aimed at improving life chances and understanding. These programs now reach one in six Britons in their lifetime. John Yates, welcome to the Creative Process. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us about your journey. Who or what inspires you, your empathy, the establishment of the Youth Endowment Fund? That's a fantastic question. I mean, my dad was a vicar. I grew up going to church and I was brought up with a strong sense that, you know, we're part of a community and we're here to, you know, we, you don't, the point of life is not to do great things and be a great person and leave a legacy. That's not the point of life. The, the point of life is to try and glorify your maker by trying to serve other people. That's the purpose of it. And you don't get to keep the score and say whether you've done a good job or not. You just try and do what you think might be of value. My mum, when I was little, always said to me, to those who have, you know, much given to them, in our language nowadays, I think we'd say to those who have privilege, you know, much is expected of you. And I always thought that was quite freeing, like a sort of sense of, like, I have a purpose. I, I should try and do something useful. And I think what you've got to sort of include in that, though, is my family were pretty good at taking the mick out of themselves. So, like, there was a strong sense that there's nothing more ridiculous than yourself and there's nothing more ridiculous than you taking yourself seriously. Like this sense that, look, we should try and do something useful of our lives, but we shouldn't overstate the value of it. And I think that's always pulled me into trying to do something of some merit. I mentioned my dad was a vicar. Comes a point if you're the, the kid of, of, of someone who runs a church that you're too little to be in the kids' stuff on a Sunday and you're too disinterested to be in the service. And so your, your only choice really is to start helping with the kids' work. And so about sort of 12, 13, I just started doing youth work and I just kept on doing it. And I found it, I found it just absolutely, I just grew to love working with young people. And obviously as I got older, the young people got older. And so the job I do now is trying to help prevent young people getting involved in, in violence. And that's come out of you know, me as a 13-year-old probably getting involved with young people's lives. The book I've written is about division. How do we build a community where people come together? That probably started with that space of faith and seeing the ability of people of faith to fight over the smallest of differences. And I was struck at quite a young age just how able we are to see people who we have so much in common with as other. And that's before you even start getting outside of the church. And then the world is other. And then everything is other. And I was just struck from quite young age that the world is better if we see each other as having something in common as well as being different. We are so much alike. It's wonderful that you seek the similarities or you search out the goodness or to find the goodness to give opportunities to young people who might not maybe otherwise have opportunities or might not have that support in their families. To go into your book for how, about how fractured we are, the good thing about fractures is that they heal over time. So why did you write Fractured? And really, how can we build stronger and more diverse communities? When I was in my early early 30s I look back on my life which is a terrifying thing to do at any point 
and I was struck how my life I'd sort of moved from one bubble to another bubble to another bubble and so you know I grew up in relatively rural part of England quite a long way away from London not a very ethnically diverse part of the country and it was its own little sort of bubble and then I left to go to university I went to Oxford University and Oxford is really divided into the students and the town and the phrase is you're either in the town or the gown that was the language people used to describe the division and one of my friends Jess who I'm so fond of said to me I don't understand why the town hate us without us there'd be nothing (laughs) and that was it you know this this inability to sort of see the value in each other and she's a really nice person I came to work in London and I worked in the East End incredibly ethnically diverse part of of London and I did community work and I, I worked with a white working class community that had been there for sort of generations and generations a black African community that had been there for probably about three or three generations, a South Asian community that have been there for about a generation, and then young professionals who had just arrived. And I really enjoyed working in each of those communities, but I was struck how little they mixed. And I thought, this is quite a tolerant place, but people don't actually connect very much. And then to sort of complete the journey, I ended up at McKinsey and Company, this management consultancy firm. If you've never employed a management consultancy I always say think of the friend of yours who uh, without you asking tells you how to do something you know tells you how to fix something and imagine if they charged you for doing that that's the world of management consultancy which is slightly harsh but I I love being in this firm and it was finally this sort of incredibly international place people from all over the world working together incredibly harmoniously actually until I realized no one in that world struggled for money at all and I realized I was in another bu- another bubble <laughs> and, and I just became increasingly struck that no matter where I moved I seemed to be in bubbles and I thought it, it shouldn't really be this way and this was when Brexit was a typo if you tried to write it and Donald Trump the worst thing he'd done is a you know a cameo in Home Alone 2 but I had just become very worried about if I can see this level of division in my country what is that doing you know, to our democracy? What is that doing to the fairness of our society? What is that doing to our anxiety levels? There must be a better way. There must be a way to connect people back together again. We live in such uh, curated bubbles and the social media has heightened it or maybe just made us aware of it. We live in an intention economy. So whether it's politics or traditional or social media or the religious group, as you say, arguing about differences where they thrive upon our division. So how do we break that down? And also in a way that's kind of natural, because say, I think it's more popular in America, there are these uh, diversity and inclusion workshops, and that almost might be enforced, something that people would feel forced to do. So what are some of the natural ways that people can come to it? Yeah, I think the first thing to recognize is that why, why do we divide in the first place? Like, why does it happen? There's a brilliant story of a man called Francis Evans, who in the, in the 1950s, in the US, decided to follow around a load of door-to-door salespeople. And he was curious as like what made them more or less likely to make a sale. The first job I ever did was door-to-door sales. Really, really hard work. And he followed these, you know, 150 salespeople selling insurance. And, and he found, to his surprise, they were more likely to make a sale if the person buying voted the same way that they did. 
they were more likely to make a sale if the person buying earned the same amount of money as they did. They were more likely to make a sale if the person buying was the same height as they were. And what Francis Evans had uncovered is something that we now have 39,000 different academic articles pointing out the existence of, which is something that I call people like me syndrome. We have this slight, and it is a slight, but slight constant bias towards people who remind us of ourselves. So, you know, why do we divide? I think we have a tendency to go, oh, it's the media it ca causing it to happen. It's social media. It's This stuff is influential and we should come, maybe come back to the role it plays but we need to understand this human nature problem here <laughs> that we have this tendency and I'm not describing here a hatred of the other there are definite issues around hatred of the other that we can obviously look at but this is not hatred this is a nervousness this is when someone turns up at a party and they look around and they think oh those group that, that they look really cool or they look very muscly or they look very posh or they look uh, I'll go and talk to those people I mean people can't necessarily see me or hearing this I've got glasses and ginger hair I'll go and talk to those people because they've got glasses too like this sort of slight tendency towards people who remind us of ourselves that comes from anxiety and this this bias this people like me bias is really significant and it is what pulls us into these little little bubbles now the way we overcome it we can learn so much from history there's a a tribe um uh, called the Hadza, who are based in northern Tanzania uh, on the on the shore of Lake Iyasi, and they've been there for sixty thousand years, four thousand of them. And every month, when the the moon is gone from the sky, they perform the same ritual. They perform something called the apem, and the way the apem works, it's not a workshop. It's not like they get together and sort of discuss and debate stuff. They don't talk about things. It's not a listening exercise. It's a, actually a dance. And what happens is that the men go and hide and the first man steps out and he's wearing black ostrich feathers and uh, and he's got a black cape and he's carrying a rattle and he's got bells around one leg and he leads off in a rhythmic dance and the women join in and sometimes children join the dance too. And this can last for two or three hours. And, and it seems to us completely pointless. <laughs> like, what are the hands are doing? This, this ritual, it doesn't serve any purpose in any religious beliefs they have. It doesn't resolve disputes. It's nothing to do with their economy. These people are hunter-gatherers. It doesn't help them. So why are they doing it? And, and a group of anthropologists followed the Hadza for a decade. And what they found is that the Hadza are more likely to trust other Hadza if either they're very closely related, people like me syndrome a little bit, or if they dance the append together. And actually, they're more likely to trust people they dance the append with than their own family. So what's, what does the append do? It builds connection and trust. It creates a sense that these other Hadza from different family groups actually are people like me. And these rituals, this is the thing that we've, we've lost. To be really clear, I'm not saying we need to bring back exactly that ritual. If you look at the sweep of human history, you can see loads of other institutions that did this, that threw us together with people we didn't know, and through activity and through shared activity created a bond, created a sense that we had something uh, in common. It wasn't about talking, it wasn't about workshops, it was about doing something together. And we don't even have a word for these institutions. I call it the common life. And I say, you know, strong societies have common life institutions, and that's what we've lost. It seems another word for it is the arts. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the APEM is, is, you could definitely describe the APEM as, a, as, I mean, it's a dance. You know, it is. That's right. I think that's absolutely right. 
I think there's really three stages of humankind. We were foragers, three Fs. We were foragers, then we were farmers, and then we were factory workers, right? And in each of those stages, you can see these, these common life institutions. And so you've got the, the rituals, often involving very similar to arts for foragers. When we were farmers, organised religion tended to play a huge role here in most societies. So you've got you've got services and you've got feast days and you've got rites of passage, which often would be very ornate and involve a lot of ritual. And these were a really big deal. So, you know, the average 15th century English person spent one day in five in some sort of feast day or rite of passage. And then as factory workers, I think then you see something slightly different. You see, you see the birth of clubs and uh, associations and societies. So we've sort of got used to some of us a narrative of the decline of those, but we also need to remember they, they suddenly came from somewhere. They suddenly boomed uh, when we started to urbanise. But you've also got schooling and the workplace. You know, these are new, in, relatively new inventions in human history. And when they arrived, they actually did play a really colossal common life role. They connected us together with strangers. And we have lost, we're much less likely to join clubs and societies. And our schools and our workplaces increasingly are full of people like me. You know, that's interesting because people used to work, you have a job for life. And so uh, now that's just not the case. And I wonder, that's other sense of belonging. We spend so much time at work, but we're moving around all the time. If we're so lucky to be not just doing a gig after gig after gig economy. So I wonder, has that also you know, broken our sense of belonging? I think that has played part of it. I think the bigger thing that we've seen with regard to the workplace is the expansion of the knowledge economy, the growth of jobs like consulting and banking and design, which has been great in so many ways. It's risen productivity, it's made us a bit wealthier, it's given us really interesting jobs to do. You know, I'm not trying to say there's nothing good here, there's lots that's good here. Why is that why is that worth noting? What it's done. If you go back to sort of 1850, 1900, 1950, if you were doing a job that was more senior, that was paid more, you needed to be close to the manufacturing site. Like you needed to, most people needed to see what was going on. They were probably managing a factory or they were probably working quite close to the factory on some sort of process design. What, what's changed is that we've increasingly been able to build firms, which is just knowledge workers and don't need to be anywhere near people who are doing much lower paid work. And so the average firm has become much more either full of university educated people or full of not university educated people. That's a real change. And so you see people also therefore moving as a result. So if you know you if you come from so I'm from this place Plymouth, uh, where the Pilgrim Fathers sailed from in the southwest of England, if you do well academically, you probably leave Plymouth. And you probably come to London and you join a firm that's full of knowledge workers who've all got degrees. That's different. That wasn't the case for the vast majority of people, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Hi, John. What activities in our modern life help us create a common life, like in cities like London, especially since there's such a diverse population there? Yeah, so I think there's lots of different ways that it can happen. I think the big three remain the three that used to be much bigger and have declined. I tell the story of decline, but they're still there. Clubs and societies, people still join clubs, they still join associations, they still meet strangers and they still connect in them. Schools, 
increasingly in the West, people choose where they send their children, or a lot of people do, and that's made them less good at bringing diverse groups together, but they're still not awful. <laughs> so they still remain places where people find a common life, um, and workplaces too. So, so these three remain decent places for commonality, but they're just not nearly as strong as they were. I think the big question is, where can we personally create these spaces? So what, what should we be looking for? We should be looking for places that tend to bring together people who uh, we didn't pick. If we choose exactly who to come, we do tend to bar towards people like us. So a dinner party in your own house might be lovely, but you probably look around the table and think, oh, these people, <laughs> these people have all got degrees <laughs> like me. Uh, and they've all got broadly the same political opinions that I've got. Now, if you join a, a club or an association locally, that's less likely. Or if you invite people from your street and you pick who you invite at random, it's slightly less likely. So the first one is who's there and how are they selected? The right. second is what, what you do together. And what we know is that talking about stuff is not the best thing. That the best thing is to do something. And ideally either something that is sufficiently out of your comfort zone, doesn't need to be massively, but sufficiently out that you're going to remember the event. And the reason that's so important is memorable events play a part in who we think we are. So what I mean is if you run a marathon, I've never run a marathon, but if I've run a marathon and you ask me, what sort of person are you? Are you, you know, are you a courageous person who's determined? I'll probably go, oh yeah, I ran that marathon. Now, when I remember running the marathon, what I'll remember is mo probably the moment I crossed the finishing line and who was there to meet me. Now, whoever has run that marathon with me at the end and was there to meet me, I sort of imprinted in my memory of who I, who I am. And so this sense of this, they become part of that, they become imprinted into my identity. You see this most clearly, the most extreme with people who fought in a war. So, you know, who are you? I'm the soldier who survived whatever. And when I think of my identity, I think of the people who were there with me. You, you get this of people who've, you know, got up on stage and given a speech when they're terrified of doing so. And they feel bonded to the people they did it with. And they think, I am one of those people like those. Or somebody survived cancer with some close friends who went through it. They think those people are very like them. So intense experiences, it doesn't have to be as tense as a war or surviving a serious mm -hmm. illness. It can be giving a speech in front of people. It could be organising an event that's a bit stressful. The other one, which is easier, is routine. For some reason, we seem to be programmed that if people follow routine steps with us, we think they're more trustworthy. It's a very odd thing. <laughs> and the suspicion is, it's because we think, or oh, they were bothered to follow the steps. I tell this story of, of the kibbutz, in, a number of the kibbutz in Israel, which had a shared pot of money that you're meant to put into and not take out of unless you needed it. And two academics tracked which of the kibbutzes are most trustworthy when it comes to not taking out unless you need it. And, and what they found originally was the more religious kibbutz are more trustworthy. And they were sort of, they looked into that a bit more and they realised actually it was the men in the religious kibbutz that were more trustworthy. The women weren't any more, more trustworthy. They're like, okay, what's going on? And they looked into it more and they found that there's, I'm not Jewish, I won't do the story, the justice that someone who's Jewish would do, but there's a prayer that the religious male Jews prayed, the immediate prayer, which they prayed regularly, which involved a certain number of steps that you performed in ritual with other people. And what they found was it was whether you took part in the immediate prayer that had an impact on whether you were trustworthy to the others on the promise on the money. Actually, the Jewish person in the religious kibbutz who was not themselves a person of faith, but did by culture 
pray the immediate prayer was more trustworthy towards the money. It was the ritual of doing the thing that created a sense of connection and loyalty. And we can't all start playing the immediate prayer. So what could we do? Eating together is good. Sitting down together, sharing food, breaking it, following some sort of ritual. Anything that involves some sort of ritualized action. Uh, this is why I think a lot of religious services have ritual to them, because it reminds us that we are making a commitment, not just to whatever we believe about our maker, but a sense of to the other people. And so, you know, ritual or intensity is great. And then people who you didn't necessarily choose to hang out with. So people playing sport together is good because it's quite intense. And there's normally a bit of ritual involved. Being in the States, I had a summer program in the UK about three years ago. And what I noticed is that all my coworkers wanted to go to lunch together. And in the States, it's not entirely a uniform type of ritual, I guess. And what I realized is that it's a binding thing. It, it makes you more connected just because we're going to eat together. The other thing is the pubs in the UK. Everybody, it seems, goes there. And in the US, that's not the case. So there's a lot of things I see that are different in different societies. Absolutely. And pubs are a really interesting example. The British pub is very well lit. Uh, it's very family friendly. You definitely wouldn't be expected to necessarily have a drink. If you went there on a Friday night, you might well be expected to be likely to have a drink, but it wouldn't be, there'd be no anxiousness if you chose not to. You know, you might well go for a meal. I might go there with my daughter who's 12 to have just a nice meal. Like it is, it is, it is a much more of a community environment. The key thing is though, that just being in the same space together doesn't have this effect. It's being together, it's combining together. And I think that's the thing that we find tricky. There's a, there's a really interesting study done. It was done in New England, I, I forget exactly where, where the academic paid two volunteers who were Hispanic to travel on the local trains and get off at certain stations in areas that were almost entirely white. And they surveyed local people's views on Hispanic immigration in the stations where they didn't get off at all during the month and where they did get off regularly. And what they found was in the places where the Hispanic volunteers never went, views on immigration didn't change at all. In the places where they went, got off, all they did was get off the train, walk around, get back on the train. In those places, the population became more anti-Hispanic immigration. So there is a danger that we think just being in the same place creates a connection. And actually it doesn't. It's normally probably neutral, but it can make us anxious. And so it's, it's finding ways to make that connection happen that's so important in terms of covid because we're going around with masks on of course things are loosening up the ability for making connections it's just you can be risking your life sometimes and so i don't know what this has done in terms of making us retreat to bubbles it was a matter of safety yeah. and how long it might take to relearn that kind of openness yeah so there's a great story of a Chinese leader being asked, it must have been, I think, it's Chairman Hu, but it, you know, it's within the last sort of 10 years or 15 years or so, being asked what he thought the um, impact of the French Revolution was. And the answer he thought to have given was, it's too soon to tell. I mean, I, I think there is an element with the pandemic that we just don't, still don't really know what the impact of it's been in a number of ways. And I think connection and division is one of those ways. So there are reasons to be con quite concerned. 
you know, most connection that's powerful happens through people actually spending time together and doing something intense or routine. That's quite hard to do digitally. Though this conversation, you know, here we are sharing stories and that's, you know, this is a powerful way to do it. The reason for a bit more positivity is I do notice here in England, at least, little things that have happened that have connected people who didn't know each other. So we've had in a number of streets around England, people forming little WhatsApp groups just with their neighbours. You know, how are you? Are you okay? Do you need any help? And what's been interesting in those WhatsApp groups is that pretty much everyone on the street is signed up. And so that, again, gets around people like me syndrome. It's not, oh, I just put the six people that I like, or I'll put the six people who I think aren't going to reject me, who kind of are my level of education look a bit like me. It really has tended to be the whole street. And so there are little elements there that you, you could imagine someone building on to say, well, let's try and bring neighbours together more generally. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag and a bit hard to tell. And I wonder when you talk about intense life events, for those who went through COVID and survived, I mean, as we know, and in England and in many places around the world, hospitals are staffed by a lot of foreigners or so-called foreigners. That can build a level of trust, I'm sure, if someone saves your life. Definitely. I'm wondering about public spaces because, and I'm wondering about in your research, how the spaces, the buildings we live in, our proximity to others, whether it's in a tightly packed metropolitan area or more spaced out, how that affects on our ability or our tendencies to separate. Yeah. Generally, the smaller the space, the more people will connect. So let me explain what I mean by that. In a big city, I think it's easy to think, oh, it's a big city. It's probably more diverse on sort of an income basis, on an ethnic basis, or an educational basis. There's probably the whole of life is here. Therefore, it's going to be better at connecting people together. The evidence wouldn't go with that. The, the evidence would say the more mixed an area, the more choice you have about who to connect with and who to keep up with. And the more you have a tendency to let people like me syndrome kick in, and the more you end up surrounded by people who have loads of different life experiences, telling people how you love living in the city because it's full of so much difference, and then actually having your dinner party with six people who vote the same way as you do and have the same level of education that you do. In smaller places, you may well have less diversity, but people sort of have less choice and they somewhat have to get on with it. There's a really interesting study. This has been tested in, in, in schools. Smaller schools lead to more mixed friendship groups. Universities, smaller university campuses lead to more mixed friendship groups. And we, you do see the same thing in the size of the, the city or the town. So you've got to think about, well, how do we design our neighbourhoods and how do we create a sense of, of, of villageness almost? And where do you place things? So, you know, if you place a library or a park or a pub very clearly in this neighbourhood, which is full of, you know, highly educated, well-off, privileged people, when you could place it here, but where the two meet, you know, you should just be aware of what the difference is. I think the other thing to be really careful of, housing is huge. I think we've made some really big errors here over the last decade. London is fortunate in that it was bombed. So let me explain what I mean by that. So it was bombed badly in the Second World War. And in those little pockets, so you ended up with streets that were still there and then a house was missing. And so what happened is where that house was gone, we would tend to build some flats. And so you'd end up with a very mixed set of housing with different types of family units and family sizes and different levels of income being able to live quite near to each other. And that created actually small neighbourhoods that were quite diverse by an income point of view, which is great for kids 
from poor backgrounds needing opportunities because those networks are really good for them. But recently what we've done is we've said, look, actually, we're not sure we like this. And we've removed some of the subsidies that have made that possible for some of those poorer families on the basis that why are they getting money to live in this lovely part of London? Now, I can you can see the logic for that argument. Why should these people be supported to live here when other people can't afford to? But it's made a less mixed environment. And the same in, in the US, there's been a sort of slowdown in the building and the provision of support for how people to be able to access housing they wouldn't normally be able to afford. And there's been you know, a reluctance to accept the building of multi-family accommodation in spaces where people are used to planning rules that protect the area and it's just you know, houses, no flats. Now, that sort of planning, I think, is problematic because it creates a more segregated neighbourhood by wealth and makes people very anxious about people who are on less income. I think it's one thing that your book made me reflect on is, is how, I mean, I feel that I have a diverse group, which is because I'm always talking to all different sorts of people, but I have to understand there is a certain educational attainment. There's a certain kind of belief in that ideal. And when I go out of it, maybe it's because we have an inner city school program, but then it's just a concentration of people from the inner city. It's not that mingling as much. So I feel like a responsibility to do more but it, as you say, it's hard. It almost takes a little bit of engineering. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, the last thing I want to say to people is, you know, you're at fault. Like, I, what I want to say is that it's not easy, right? You know, that I, I kind of want people to look around and go, ah, oh, in some ways, my friends are really different. But in some ways, they are kind of <laughs> a little similar. And, and so I feel you to recognise that a bit. And it's not true of everyone, as any general statement doesn't apply to everyone. But it is true of most of us. But I don't want people to feel guilty about it. I also said to recognise that's a bit noticeable. Then to notice that it has it, it damages things we care about. So most of us care about anxiety levels being relatively high, particularly amongst teenagers. Um, fear of the other is a big part of anxiety. We also, most of us care about democracy and the state of our democracy. And these, these bubbles are obviously very bad from that point of view, because it allows demagogues to come along and tell a load of lies. I mean, I think the classic example of this is, you know, lies that are told about another, another nation's citizens, or people from a different ethnic background, you know, all Mexicans are da da da, all Muslims are da 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 da. It's quite hard to believe that if one of your friends is a Muslim, you sort of find yourself going, well, apparently all Muslims are awful, but Mohammed's not, he's really nice. Hang on, something's not right here. And it also has an impact on fairness. 40% of jobs come through word of mouth. If our networks are not diverse, poorer families don't access those networks. They don't have a chance to get on. So I want us to recognise it, it matters. But then I want to say, look, it's not totally your fault. It's none of our faults. We've lost something. Uh, and I want to create a sort of a bit of a groundswell to say, God, someone should do something about this. We should actually care about the creation of spaces that, bring us together in the same way if I say look there's a real problem with global warming someone should invest money in green technology I'm saying there's a there's a lack of warming lack of us coming together someone should invest in the things that bring us together uh, and we know what some of those are the clubs and societies the way our school admissions work the way workplaces recruit we should actually challenge and change some of those things to try and create a more mixed community John Yates, 
challenges us to expand our definition of community. He argues that a more encompassing definition that includes different forms of diversity can produce a more cohesive community. This challenge is at all levels and includes individuals, municipalities, and beyond. The policies enacted today affect the society that emerges tomorrow. His book is well aligned to the theme of the 2022 INTBAU World Congress, taking place on March 24th and 25th in London and virtually. The Congress with the title of How We Build From Here is a biennial forum which brings together global perspectives and knowledge about the built environment in communities around the world. In the days of remote work, finding the common life as John Yates describes it has been increasingly difficult. It isn't enough to be in the same space or even to meet periodically through Zoom. We actually have to do things together and become comfortable with discomfort to make real connections. What can we do day to day, ordinary people, to overcome this sort of fear of the other or all these other anxieties that you were talking about? Yeah, so I think there's three three things in the book. I suggest 42 things you can. There's 32 things you can do right now. So feel free if, if my list of three isn't enough, pick up the book and have a look. But you know, three things that we anyone could do. So the first one is. Go to your social media account if you're on social media. If you're not on social media, bravo. (laughs) But if you are on social media, as I am, go to Twitter, which is my sort of poison of choice. And just look at the last 10 people that tweeted. And if you agree with them on pretty much everything, add a couple of new people to follow who you don't agree with. Who So if you're, you know, if you're a committed Republican, add, add a couple of people who are clearly Democrats. If you're committed Democrat, Republicans, ditto whatever country you're in. And I don't mean people who are purposely divisive and purposely hateful, but I do mean people who might have views that you strongly disagree with. So that would be the first thing that any of us can do, and it's really easy and quick to do. The second thing is join something. Find some club, society, organisation, that you might join that's locally ideally one that doesn't cost very much or even one that's free you could volunteer somewhere because then you're likely to more likely to meet a mix of people and go to four sessions and if you hate it stop going pat yourself on the back feel proud of yourself you had a go at it well done that's brilliant but you know just try it the third one then is what i would call hospitality once a year invite some of your neighbors around but don't pick them Uh, You don't pick the ones who you think are most likely to say yes. Either pick them on the basis of how close they live to you or roll a dice (laughs) and on that basis, invite them. And if you're thinking, oh, I can invite all my neighbours around, just invite two. (laughs) If if you go and like two, invite one person. Make it a number that you can just absolutely nail. If you're like, I can't cook for them, don't cook for them. (laughs) Have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Just make it as low effort as possible. But once a year give that a go. Three things that any of us could do. Awesome. That's, that's really great. Now you have such a unique perspective. It's really amazing. And I know you talked about the different bubbles that you kind of traverse in within your life, but is there some perspective that you gained as a stand-up comic that has shaped this outlook? Oh, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. I should say I was, a, I was, I, I failed very fast as a stand-up comic. I was persistently mediocre for a period of time, which is the worst, because you don't even have funny stories about how awful you were. But you you do learn things. I mean, the, the, the first thing I think you learn is you've got to understand how other people think, because 
ultimately when you're walking on stage you know you you're thinking what are they thinking of this person and they're probably looking at me thinking who's this nerdy ginger head uh looks ludicrously young I mean I look slightly older now but I've never really aged very well person who's you know who is this preppy kid who's gonna try and make them laugh who probably looks like he should be doing studying for his doctorate like you've got to somehow sort of get inside people's heads you know and 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 the nature of trying to make people laugh is understanding their thought pattern as you're talking and then trying to subvert it slightly and so I I think the other thing is you know um, and as I say I'm not you know I was not a great comedian but you've got to you've got to get comfortable with the concept of rejection like you're going to walk out on stage and some of the people are not going to find you funny uh, and they're going to think you wasted their time. And you know what? They're not going to remember that the next day. And it's not the end of the world. And actually, one of the reasons we don't cross boundaries a bit or we don't go and talk to that person who you know is too posh, not posh enough, whatever it might be, is because we think they're going to reject us. And actually, rejection is not the worst thing that can happen to you, especially if you're coming from a place of relative privilege. And so, you know, those are those are some of the things that, that struck me. Yes, we can be paralyzed by the fears. And I guess the bigger part of it is that sometimes people don't remember. <laughs> people don't remember. That's perhaps the biggest rejection. Actually, in my gigs, being unrememberable was a definite success. And so it <laughs> depends where you draw the bar, I guess. I think that perhaps if I might say, but I don't think it's a, a demerit. It's maybe you're too kind. You sometimes have to be a little bit cruel and humor. I mean, against yourself, yeah. or against others. Yeah, I think I think there's different ways of humor. So diverse, right? But I say, you know, I wasn't a marvelous comic. I think you've got to, if you're going to try and make people laugh, you've got to be honest about what makes you laugh. And I've always found a sense of the ridiculous funny. And so, you know, I was much more curious as to, you know, we've had big storms recently and we all have names. And I was just curious, like, who started naming storms? Like, was there a PR agency that was employed to say, no, everyone hates storms, but if you had a friendly name? You know, this is the sort of thing I sort of find entertaining and interesting. Whereas sort of doing people down, I, 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 find, um, I find a bit tiresome after a while. But there are some amazing comics who are brilliant at sort of uh, lampooning people. It's interesting because for illuminating and as you know even in religion you know there's a sense that you can teach through comedy your empathy is obvious I'm thinking of a comedian who I appreciate her name is Maria Bamford you might appreciate her too because you can use a comedy to bring across empathy and she has her own mental difficulties but she turns into comedy yeah you might enjoy discovering her so I think that there is a way and she's she's not cruel at all so that itself is a feat it's interesting how she illuminates experiences that really wouldn't be discussed on stage yeah. and it was quite vulnerable. What are some of your teaching tools as well as you're dealing with young people, as you're mm. trying to um, bridge differences and, and build communities? Mm. What are some of those stories or teaching tools or, or tools you learned from your father? That's a great question. With the organization I, I lead, the way I... I try and work with colleagues to try and get things done. And the way I try and do the youth work that I've done, I'm a huge believer in equality of status. And by that, I don't mean that there's no hierarchy. To me, if you're doing, to some extent, when you're doing youth work, at least to begin with working with a group of particularly teenagers, they actually need the adult to be, I'm actually in charge here. (laughs) You're safe because I'm in charge. No one one else is going to take charge and make you do something you don't like. 
I'm in charge, I've got this. So I'm not saying no to hierarchy. I think youth work actually requires someone to be a bit of a leader and then provide a safe space and then let people do what they want to do. But that sense that I am not of more value than you. You know, I am not more important than you. I have a role to play here. And I think that so much of when I learn, it's because someone's got something really fantastic to show me or to tell me. And I'm not, I'm, I don't feel threatened. So I'm not, it, when, I, when I feel threatened, and by that I mean sort of, oh, I've got to prove myself. When I think someone's trying to test me, and ch- I'm so busy trying to work out how to impress this person or how to show them that I've got it, that I'm not open and I'm not listening and I'm not learning. Um, and the same is true for connection. If I'm so busy defending myself, and I'm so busy justifying myself, I'm not listening, I'm not empathising, I'm not connecting. And so I, I think the most, it brings back to comedy a bit, that the most important thing is to, if you can somehow just, take the mick out of yourself, release your own tires a little bit to show that, you know, you don't think you're the most important person in the room. I think it can create a space where people can learn. And I definitely learned that from my father. But there is a bit of risk though. Every time you walk out that stage, anything could happen, you could get laughed at. That sense of risk basically sounds like it helped propel you to try different things. Is this true for any age? How can we as adults try to get more comfortable with taking that kind of risk yes my friends would say I, i'm quite a risk taker you know i've set up a few different social enterprises from scratch you know i've left safe secure jobs i've spent time in different countries where i didn't know anyone to try and do things none of that's ever felt terribly risky to me if you know, if you give me a skateboard and say you know try and do a you know what a half pipe is try and you know go to i'm terrified because I, my sense of balance isn't good enough. I'm going to fall on my backside and it's going to hurt. Like, I hate pain. I really dislike it. <laughs> and so I will not take risks. I'll seem like a non-risk taker. The key thing for me with the risks that I've been perceived to take is they don't seem risky because what am I actually risking? Like, I'm risking that I'm trying to set up a charity, I'm trying to raise money, and I might fail. And if I fail... I'll go and get another job. You know, I'm fortunate. You know, I've got a good education. I've got some good networks. I will find employment. And so what's the risk? The risk is I look stupid. Most of us, many of us can be very paralyzed by that concern. And I think I have to actively try and prevent myself being paralyzed, right? But I'm like, I'm going to die, right? (laughs) I'm only here for like, you know, three school years and 10. And I'm gone. No one's going to remember me. And if they are, they're going to die eventually. And then no one's going to remember me. What am I worried about? I'm worried I'm going to look stupid. Why do I care about this? I think this is the big push for me. I totally think, I think humans really need to feel valued and loved. And they need to feel they are of value. Now, the question is, where do you get your value from? And so the question for me always is, where do I get my value from? And I try and get my value from faith plays a big part in my life so not everyone has that um, way of thinking about the world so I'm not going to major on that but that's the only part of it the sense I believe there's a God that thinks I'm of worth but it's more than that I believe that my closest friends my dearest friends and my family think I'm of worth that's it that would do and if you know if a hundred people and a thousand people think I'm an idiot that's a bit annoying but it's not totally the end of the world and they're not going to think about it after a week because they're going to have other things to think about I think that's probably made me more comfortable in saying, look, if I do stand up and it's a disaster, it doesn't matter that much. 
And if I start a charity and it fails, and I have, you know, founded things that fell apart, it's not the end of the world. Whereas if I fall on my on my butt while I'm doing something on a skateboard, that really hurts. And so, you know, that's been my way of looking at things. I want to speak a little bit about, I don't want to say failures, but what you learned from your early works in charity. And you must say that now you're hugely successful with the Youth Endowment Fund, 200 million sterling. You'll update me on the figures. So what have you learned from that process? A struggle with charities or nonprofits is that it can take a lot of energy doing this kind of administrative, or the, the, the good works that you want to do is spent fundraising or spent in other activities. So how do you find the energy for what is the core activity? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we have a saying at the Youth Endowment Fund, which we've nicked from someone, which is the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. And, and I think it's really, it sounds nonsense, but it's really profound The main thing for the Youth Endowment Fund is trying to reduce violence for young people. That's the main thing. It's not keeping funders happy. It's not keeping my board happy. It's not keeping me happy. It's not keeping the staff happy. It's not being a bit more efficient. These are all good things. And we should try and do them, but they're not the main thing. And I think the danger is that with with a charity, you can get very distracted by raising the money or producing a great report, or getting in the media, or getting in the press, all the things that might get you praised, but they're not the main thing. And so I think that that's so key, I think. The other way to think about it is your first love. What's the thing that got you into wanting to be a charity in the first place? It wasn't to raise money. Like, it wasn't to get in the paper. It was because you wanted to solve a problem. And so, you know, trying to keep your focus, I think, is really important. What I, I've learned a colossal amount from failure. I mean, I, I've failed more than most people, definitely, because I think I've taken, I've tried more things than most people. My hit rate's probably okay, but my number of failures is decently high. And I, I think I've learned that you can't co- totally predict what's going to work and what's not going to work unless you do it. And I, I spent time, as I say, at Oxford University and at McKinsey. Those things train you to plan everything and to work it, think it all through. But the truth is you can't plan everything. Same as doing stand-up comedy, right? You, you, can have a, you can have a routine, but someone heckles you, you're going to have to do something different. And so I think I learned, actually, not everything goes according to plan. And some of the things that work best don't go according to plan. You've got to somehow find the space to reflect and look and see what's working and adjust. And sometimes you've got to say something's not working and quit. And that's painful, but that's okay. Failure is meant to be painful, but it, it's not, it doesn't kill you. I do feel with predictability is like if you could predict it, it might not even be worth doing. Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably true. I used to feel when I'd revised for my exams, the actual writing of the exam felt like a waste of time. <laughs> waste of time. I kind of felt like someone could just like believe me that I'd revised enough. And I, maybe it's the same sort of thing. You know, if you planned the whole thing out, if your business plan really is what's going to happen, isn't the job done? So yeah, I kind of agree with that. So I'm very interested in the child development as well. We've been doing a lot of interviews with neuroscientists, for example, mm-hmm. and even discussing things like the rates of criminality and, and whether one is responsible with one's neuroplasticity when one is young for the things that even crimes that might one might commit. And so what are your reflections on the, the people we are as young people and the people we become and then how we can better nurture those who are at risk to achieve their best selves? Yeah. I mean, this is a deep, deep question, but um, I think, 
you know, no man is an island, as John Donne said. No child is an island. And to live a flourishing life, in my view, is to is to live a, a good life in community with others. Our lives only really... My, my wife once said to me before we were married, she said, can I ever really know you? Like, can we ever really know each other? And I'm being really struck by this question. You know, can we ever get beyond really deeply to know the person? And I thought about it for a long time. And I thought, do you know what? Who am I? I am partly the relationships that I hope. So, you know, without sounding too cliched, like, I don't think it's just that my wife works to get to know me. The relationship with my wife is part of what makes me me. So, you know, she doesn't just try and get to know me. She sort of completes me. That sounds very sort of like a Hollywood movie quote. But you know what I mean? Like, I think we are who we are in relationships. And I think young, if I think particularly about young men who go on to commit acts of violence, and obviously this is true of women too, but we do have a particular problem with male violence. A lot of it is that sense of insecurity. You know, that sense of who am I? How do I fit into this? Why am I of worth? And a lot of that, to my view, is back to relationships. And the relationships we form when we're young with the adults we're most born to trust, our mum and if they're our dad, those are fundamental relationships. And then the friendships that we form. And if actually those relationships don't, don't become ones that suggest that people are trustworthy, that, that is really difficult, I think, for humans to handle. And it, it makes it hard for us to learn things like self-control, you know, things like love, things like acceptance, things like self-acceptance. Someone pointed out to me a brilliant piece of research the other day that showed the number of violent events committed by the age of the child. Bear with me. Do you think that a 10-year-old is more or less violent than a two-year-old? Is a 15-year-old more or less violent than a 10-year-old? The truth is, the two-year-olds are the most violent. Three-year-olds are slightly less violent. Four-year-olds are slightly less violent, more violent. Five-year-olds, we basically become less violent as we get older. We just don't think of two-year-olds as being violent, crazed, maniacs because they don't really hurt us (laughs) because they're two we learn through our relationships how to control our desires and our feelings and we learn to stop using violence over time but some of us don't and that's a failure of society to look after our children and we've got to provide that acceptance that warmth and that tutoring that some of us find very hard to pick up and it's interesting because you think of the the baby or the two-year-old as being so vulnerable And it it also makes you think about, of course, we all have within us a capacity. Actually, I've been quoting this this line lately as an old Native American expression that we have within us two dogs. One is like good and one is evil. One is angry and full of and one is Mm. full of love and whatever, whichever I feed the most wins. And so we have to feed that. We have to nurture. And going back to your book, Fractured, it makes you also think about how much we project notions of violence or trust onto people that are just neutral so that yeah. there, there are people in society where, I mean, if I go into a shop, maybe people aren't following me around with their eyes because I'm considered in a trustworthy yeah. group. But, uh, you know, a youth who maybe have a different color skin than me could have a completely different experience yeah. and uh, based on, based on no fault of their own. Absolutely right. And, the discrimination that young black men, particularly from lower income backgrounds, experience in most Western societies is a colossal problem. And it's a problem for anyone who cares about society. But, you know, I'm saying that as a white middle class 
middle-aged bloke it's much more of a problem for young black men who are not and we we owe it to them to be honest about the problem we've got around discrimination about systemic racism and to realize we have to fix it but we mustn't just talk about that and it comes back again to contact how many of us when i'm never going to understand what it's like to be a young black man growing up in england i'm never going to understand that but if i don't have any friends who are young black men I haven't even got a shot of empathising with it. And, you know, contact really matters. You know, these friendships really matter because they help us to think, I don't fully know what it's like to be Ukrainian, but I want to fight for them all I can because I understand enough. And the same is true. You know, if we live in these little silos, we don't understand enough to say, I need to do what I can, even though I don't fully see and understand what's going on. Yes, so... In closing, you know, as you reflect on education and the challenges we face and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? And can you also share with us a personal memory about the beauty and wonder of the natural world? Wow, what an amazing question. I mean, the thing I fundamentally want children to know is that they are of value, not because of something that they will do with their life but they are of value first. I think we tell our children that they are special because they have unique, no, they, everyone has a unique talent, they just need to find it. I don't believe that. I, I think the most important truth is that everyone is of unique value. And we may have a unique talent, but some of us may not. <laughs> I don't think I really have a unique talent. I think I have some talents, but other people have them too. <laughs> but I am of unique value no one else is no one else is me and I'm of unique value that's the most important thing for someone to know I mean the thing of beauty I I remember when I was a a teenager I was having doubt about you know is any meaning or purpose in the world and I remember sort of praying I I wish I could have a sign there was some sort of purpose or meaning and I I looked up and I saw and I I think this was a coincidence I don't believe it was some sort of magical event but I, I looked up and I saw the, the plough, you know, the constellation of the plough. And I was so struck by its awesomeness. Uh, and I never noticed it before. I knew it existed, but I never noticed it before. And I was struck also how small I was in comparison to the beauty of these stars that told me the world is full of beautiful things. And I am a very, very small part of it. And what I do doesn't matter that much. And so I shouldn't worry about it too much but I can know that there's great beauty in the world and I should enjoy it. Yes, it's awesome when one takes the time and to just respect the beauty that's all around us and to just take the time to notice. So thank you, John Yates, for your humanistic principles and helping us understand the behavior systems and institutions that fracture society and how we can come together as communities despite what divides us to create positive futures. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks so much for having me. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk and Iyabo Lawal with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this podcast was Iyabo Lawal. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening. Thank you.